0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Jeff Wilson seems to have lived one adventure after the next. One of his earliest memories is his family fleeing Uganda in a tiny plane piloted by his dad. Then at 17, Jeff rode a bicycle from London to Kenya, dodging bullets in Egypt and civil war in Sudan. And the expeditions didn't stop after Jeff became a vet and had a family. He's crossed the Torres Strait using a kite, the Sahara Desert the same way, and made the longest solo, unsupported polar journey in human history. This year, he's had an adventure closer to home, letting the wind drag him across the Simpson Desert, a journey 11 years in the making. And for Jeff, it was a young man he met in the aftermath of the Boxing Day tsunami who inspired the life he's lived. Hi, Jeff.
0: Sarah, it's so good to be here. It's
1: so good to be here, but does this feel a little ho-hum to you, like sitting down, just having a conversation? Shouldn't we be kind of at least skydiving at, at the same time?
0: Yeah, it's so hard to have a decent chat though, isn't it, when you're falling at <laughs> 220 kilometres an hour? No, it's so, uh, I don't know, I think uh, the adventures only mean something if we unpack them a little bit and understand why.
1: A lot of the adventures you've you've had, as I mentioned, involve kites and wind. Why? What is it about kites that you love?
0: I just love, um, you know, the free energy that we have and whether it be solar or wind power, just harnessing that. And uh, I recognise that my morale in the wilderness is very much attached to those kites. So for the periods of time where there is no wind or the wind's in the wrong direction, when you're hauling and using your body to pull extreme weight through deep snow, I find my morale dips. But then the minute that little piece of canvas is in the air, I can feel my soul singing and I'm making easy miles.
1: How do you actually travel using a kite? What's the the contraption look like?
0: Well, it's it's very different depending on what you're on. And, And I don't know that there's anyone who's been stupid enough to cover the distances that I have on ocean, sand and ice. There's probably no one who's... Spent as long attached to a kite now, uh, but every apparatus is different. So over water, you're probably on a board or a hydrofoil, getting pulled by a traditional kite surfing kite. On the sand, generally, I'm in a three wheel buggy with big, uh, low pressure tyres, steering with your feet, and the kite's attached to a hook on your on your uh, waist. And then on snow, generally, I've got all my living um, and survival supplies in a sled connected to my waist, and we're dragging it using a kite on skis. And, and of all of the modes of transport, ice obviously having the lowest friction has the the greatest glide, but also the greatest consequence if things go wrong.
1: And when there's a big gust of wind, Jeff, you ever airborne?
0: Yeah, I've actually, and this is probably a bit much for radio, but I've actually had so much abdominal pressure that you know, shat your pants from the pressure of the kite pulling on your abdomen. So coming down the Somo Becking Glacier on that last journey, I got hit by a gust and the sleds were airborne, I was airborne, the kite was airborne, and halfway through that disaster, there was a an underpant disaster that was hard to undo.
1: <laughs> Captain Underpants, how did he get back down when you lifted up like that?
0: Well, it's about timing your release. Every kite has what they call a quick release, which turns that, um, incredible, powerful arc of, of you know, canvas into a plastic bag on the end of a string. If you time that wrong, then you're going to end up with a broken pelvis or a broken femur. So just making sure that you ride the kite to the bottom of the arc. And, and at that point, I was probably 10 metres in the air. The sleds were probably five metres in the air. Um, and this incredible, powerful gust will either burst the kite, in which case you fall very ungracefully in a heap, Or you ride it to the bottom of that arc and then hit safety. And that's what I managed to do. But you're really worried about knee injuries generally with that sort of thing.
1: When you're not flying a kite across some of the world's wildest places, you're a vet and your parents were veterinarians too. Where were they working when you were born?
0: So they were working uh, with the um, veterinary services in Uganda and East Africa. And my dad's responsibility was mainly in uh, understanding the tsetse fly and sleeping sickness. So he used a light aircraft to get to remote parts of Uganda and Kenya uh, to take blood samples. And I remember as a boy being loaded in the back of this flying tin can <laughs> and uh, watching him taking blood from camel's necks and just thinking, wow, what a, what a fantastic way to earn your living.
1: What complication were you
0: born with? So, yeah, this is something I've just come back from Kenya where I've met with my best friend Simon Sayer. Uh, we were both uh, in our mum's tummies at the same time. It was a really bad malarial time during the wet season in East Africa. And at the time, no one understood that anti-malarials stopped the child's face closing properly uh, in the womb. So we were both born within days of each other with pretty severe cleft palate and hair lip. Um, as a result of these anti-malarials.
1: And what did that mean in terms of the surgery you had as as just a really little kid?
0: Yeah, well, this is the thing. We both had the same surgeon, a brilliant guy in Nairobi, who, because of the anti-malarials, was one of the most experienced cleft palate people on the planet at the time. So, you know, in 1970, the, the surgical techniques were a little bit rough and ready, but this was one of the best guys on the planet. So I was very fortunate to have him uh, but Simon had the same guy and we had a bit of a laugh because for some unknown reason both parents decided as when we were older at boarding school that we would learn the clarinet. And we've both got a hole <laughs> in our cleft palate. So the clarinet teacher would look at us and go, What is that horrendous squeak? And it was the air coming through the hole in the hard palate. And go, what sort of parent gives a cleft palate care to clarinet? Part of the resilience development, I would say. <laughs>
1: Who looked after you at home when you were a little boy in Uganda?
0: Well, my mum and dad, uh, obviously, you know, traditionally were were parenting. But at the time we had this beautiful Ugandan lady, Anna. And if I think of, um, you know, warm, fuzzy memories as, as a youngster, it's running full tilt into her enormous belly. And she'd always have this white sort of coat on that smelt like uh, campfire and posho. posho is there like a cornmeal equivalent. And it's got a very strong smell. Whenever I'm I'm in Africa, if I smell that, I have these incredible warm memories of Anna. And my sister, who's two years older than me, also has the same memories. So I think she was just one of those incredibly enveloping, loving, emotionally aware people. who's very instrumental in my life.
1: As you mentioned, you were born in, in 1970, and that's just before the brutal reign of the military dictator Idi Amin began in Uganda. Tell me about the run-in your dad had with some soldiers when he was flying back from Nairobi with supplies for his vet practice.
0: Well, I think the, the situation, you know, often people say, how could you get caught in that situation? But, you know, I think being positive-minded people, they were, they were thinking this will settle down, it'll get better. And as slowly, Idi Amin got madder and madder as he got more and more power. Uh, the number of bodies in the river out the front of the house started to pile up. Uh, The situation, you know, grew more and more desperate. Dad tells the story of them going to a fancy dress party and then getting pulled out of this VW Beetle by child soldiers, sure they were going to get machine gunned to death. Uh, One of the party guys wet his pants because he was dressed as a Boy Scout with a red lapel and they were convinced he was a communist and needed to be shot. So the situation was getting really bad. During all of this, Dad was flying to Nairobi to bring back foodstuffs um, and supplies including, you know, stuff that they needed for their sleeping sickness testing. He would always circle the runway from the air and make sure there were no soldiers but on this one occasion, he missed two Land Rovers full of soldiers in the forest. When he landed, they came straight over and it was very obvious that they were intent on taking the plane and potentially taking his life. They all circled the, car, the plane and he, his survival kind of instinct kicked in and he thought, oh, okay, how do I uh, survive this? So he opened the plane door and pretended that he misunderstood their intention, thinking that they were going to help unload the plane. So he takes the first box of groceries and gives it to the soldier, pushes his gun away and points to his land rover, which was parked under the trees, and that fellow looks at his boss, who's a young commandant. And the boss nods. So they unload the plane for him. The last thing out of the plane is a guitar that he'd bought in Nairobi. So he sat down on the wheel of the the plane and started to sing.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: Dad's a self-taught guitarist with a repertoire of about five songs. So (laughs) on the fifth song, uh, which is a a local song about an overweight landlord who falls in love with her tenant called Fat Fat as a Cow... (laughs) He's got these soldiers singing fat, fat as a cow at the top of their voice, but he's sweating internally, realising this is my last song. So the song finishes and he stands up promptly and gives the guitar to the commandant and then locks the plane and turns and the commandant orders uh, a guard put on the plane and they escort him to his car and he drives away. Now, the end to this story is about four months later in the middle of the night the phone goes and it was during the time when they realised that the country was going to hell in a handbasket and they had to leave. The phone rings in the middle of the night and Dad picks up and he recognises the voice and it's this African deep rumble saying, listen, you don't know me. I know you. We're watching you. You need to move your plans forward. If you do not leave tomorrow, you will die. And then he hung up. Who was it? It was the commandant who he'd given the guitar to, saved our lives because there was an, a plan to attack the farm we were living on and literally the next day they packed everything up and departed and uh, that singing with the guitar and his creativity saved all of our lives.
1: God, what, what must have been going through your parents' minds? You were there just, of course, you and your sister, just little kids. How do you remember it?
0: I have little snippets and, you know, you don't know whether it's the Irish storytelling because my father's a very good Irish storyteller. I don't know whether it's my brain recreating things, but uh, I have snippets of, you know, imagining looking out of the vehicle, out of the aircraft. I remember pulling the, the bridal veil off my daughter's little... Barbie doll your sisters, equivalent. Yeah, sisters. Yes, sorry, my sisters.
1: So, so you, you escaped from the property and went back to, what, the same plane that your dad had been driving, flying back and forth to, to Kenya?
0: Yeah, so that same plane was the way they owned a third of the plane, so they sold everything they had and bought the other two thirds, and, and that's how they got their money out of Uganda.
1: And what kind of plane was it?
0: It's a tiny plane. I literally 10 days ago landed at Wilson Airport in Nairobi next to a Cessna 172. Um, And just looked at it and went, wow, that is tiny. It's literally, if you imagined, a third of a Honda Civic with a wing and an engine. This thing, it would barely get off the ground with, with two adults, let alone two adults and two children and their gear. I just don't, you know, you look at that aircraft and go, how the hell do you fly that for 42 days from Uganda all the way to Townsville?
1: So you remember being in the back seat with your sister. What what other memories or what, what do you remember seeing or where would you land on that long journey, all those thousands of kilometres from, from Uganda to Townsville?
0: I remember having, uh, you know, looking out the window in the middle of a cyclone and imagining, you know, no fear, just looking at palm trees at 45 degrees, rain coming in sideways And Dad looking a little stressed because he's looking for a place to land. And he was guided in by a a bigger aircraft above him uh, who was convinced he was going to die in this cyclone. Um, They landed in Darwin after Cyclone Tracy. Um, I, I remember snippets of devastation there. Just strange things. Cake in Burma for my birthday at the time. Um, you know, just weird little random memories.
1: So obviously it was a really dangerous thing. It was an escape. But did your mum and dad manage to make it feel a bit like an adventure for you and your sister?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you know that that smell that you get in an aircraft, it must be a mixture of aviation fuel and and canvas seats. If I ever get into an aircraft, it's obviously a, a smell that was in my psyche from such an early age. It brings me back to... You know, probably the birth of adventure for me was this incredible formative journey.
1: Your family landed in Townsville. How much of a culture shock was that for you?
0: Oh, the old man, um, obviously they've come from colonial Kenya, very British culture, and he tells the story that he he went to the bank and the fellow in the bank had no shirt on. And he was just aghast that a man would work in a bank and the air conditioning was off, and this fellow had his shirt off, big, enormous beer gut, sweating. and in within, Townsville? In Townsville. <laughs> <laughs> within two days, they had a bank loan for a house. They landed on the Thursday. <laughs> on the Monday, they bought their first house. There was an argument over, because they had to respray the plane to Australian uh, registration details, there was an argument between two factions at the airport, and a gun was drawn and... My dad just says, man, we've landed in the wild, wild west.
1: What did the other kids make of you?
0: Uh, yeah, I, mean, I think that's probably a little bit of my formative stuff as well. It's obviously been a cleft-palate kid with a British accent. My first language was Swahili, um, not not English. So a weird accent, slightly odd kid. I'd be the kid, you know, who would, was happier sort of playing by himself in the corner at that stage. And I remember being introduced as by my dad. This is my son, Jeff. He's a quiet boy. I don't know where that boy went. There's there's no quiet boy left. <laughs> but at that age, I was certainly a very quiet, introspective child.
1: After a few years, your family actually went back to Africa. Your dad took a job at the University of Nairobi. Where did you go to school once you were in Kenya?
0: Well, this is a reconnection with Simon. So my best mate, Simon, uh, we knocked around together, you know, from zero to five. He was then in this boarding school that I was dropped into, Um, at the age of 9, 10, 11, and uh, we became besties once again and sort of hung together. But he was very, very quiet, and both being cleft-palate kids, uh, he would get bullied and then I'd go and fight. There wouldn't be a day go by where I wouldn't be standing protecting Simon and we laugh about it now. He's still a pacifist and I'm I'm not really a pacifist. Like I I'm like, no no, that's an injustice. I'm gonna step in. It
1: can be useful for us pacifists to have fighter friends. That's yes, true.
0: Absolutely.
1: <laughs> when um when you and Simon get into mischief, what kind of uh, reaction would you get from the headmaster of that boarding school?
0: Well this is back in the time when, you know, corporal punishment was very much agreed upon so you would get marched in and caned for the smallest misdemeanor. We're laughing saying we were in chapel meant to be singing hymns but we were just chatting to each other and then these vice-like groups grab our necks and Next minute, you're asked to choose your own cane out of a cupboard of canes.
1: What, what, what was the best cane to choose? I guess uh, you're wanting the one that's going to be inflict the least damage.
0: Yeah, well, you're, uh, you know, your nine-year-old brain is looking at these things going, well, I don't know, they all look dangerous, but I, I always chose the short stubby one. Simon went for the thin, whippy one, and he'd always get a little nick on the end of his elbow because it would bend around your backside and hit your elbow. But um, then we'd sprint down the corridor into the bo- into the lockers room. It's an all boys school. Drop your pants and compare cuts and go. Ah, oh, mine are better than yours. So, you know, I just don't think it's probably the best way to discipline kids. But for us, um, it certainly made us stronger.
1: Sounds like something out of Roald Dahl, I have to say, Jeff. Your family moved again and and your parents began working in Indonesia. So you were away from this best mate, Simon, but you kept in touch while you were on, on separate parts of the world. What plan did you hatch for once you finished school, you and Simon?
0: Well, it's interesting because my initial plan was to learn how to fly an ultralight. And I remember writing to Coke and Pepsi and all of these companies to try and get funding to fly this ultralight around the equator. I wanted to take off, fly all the way around the equator and land. Anyway, I just got no after no after no. So eventually I said, I oh, will bugger it. I'll cycle from London back home to Kenya and Simon's coming with me, whether he likes it or not. So. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and you're just 17 at this point.
0: Yeah. So landed in London at 17. I worked in a as a lambing, like a shepherd. I worked in Ireland sticking labels on jam jars and one thing that that amazed me is my mum and dad have always been supportive of whatever adventure and they said, listen, for every dollar you earn, we'll, we'll double it. Um, so that's really what made it possible to buy the bicycle. I All the money that I'd saved up digging trenches and pulling lambs out, um, we doubled and then I set off with Simon and some poor guy called Aubrey who we met on the tube. <laughs> How did, how did
1: Aubrey come along with this?
0: Well, it's was 1988. So he's the only guy, uh, 1987, 1988, he's the only guy smiling on the tube. Everyone else looked miserable. He
1: has to be an Australian.
0: Had to be. So I yelled out over the top, you must be an Aussie. And he was a <laughs> Sri Lankan born Aussie. And he just laughed. And he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm, I'm cycling to Kenya. Do you want to come? And he just had this yes moment which we regretted many, many (laughs) times after that. And three months later, we uh, we were in France heading south.
1: What budget were you under on that trip? You'd saved your money, but how much did you have to spend a day?
0: We survived, and this is crazy now, you just think. We survived on one US dollar a day for 90 days. What does that buy you? Oh, it was amazing. We were eating like kings, cheese and French baguettes, but it was a sleeping, you're always sleeping rough sleeping in fields, waking up with cattle, licking your hair, goats over the top of you, sleeping on the top of monasteries, uh, very generous people putting us up and giving us food for the next few days. Uh, but, yeah, I think part of the, the joy of that journey was how little funding we had. Um, and we went anyway.
1: What happened to Simon when you were in northern
0: Greece? Yeah, we had, he was always against hanging on to vehicles. So all the way through Yugoslavia, we would cycle up to these little Renault 4s, which had this incredible lip on the top of the roof, which was perfect for hanging on to. And the drivers would give you the big thumbs up and they'd pull you up the next hill, you'd peel off. Simon was fundamentally against it. He said, listen, no, if we're going to do it, I'm not going to do it with any assistance. So we'd wait up the top and have a cracker while he cycled up. looked like death at the top and then we'd roll down together. By the time we got to Greece, he finally took a risk and said, okay, I'll hang on. But I said, this is a tractor. Be really careful of the lugs on the wheel. Anyway, the driver we thought knew we were there, he turned around and decided to veer wildly to get us off. I peeled off right, Aubrey peeled off left. Simon, who was a bit further back, closer to the wheel, got picked up and flicked straight into the deck, um, suffered a head injury, um, and we ended up up in a Greek hospital.
1: And how did you pay for that?
0: Well, this is I'm not proud of this moment. Uh, we had no money. So we got him treated and then I pulled his trip out and we climbed down a drain pipe and cycled off after about three days of treatment. So I'm really sorry. Somewhere in Greece I couldn't even find the place. We owe money.
1: <laughs> after Greece you were in Egypt and south of Cairo, you were cycling to look at some pyramids in the desert. What
0: happened? Yeah, there's a place called Dhaka, D H A K K A. They've got these ancient pyramids that predate the traditional triangular pyramids. They're like an Aztec step pyramid. And we'd had a terrible time with mosquitoes uh, and obviously terrified of malaria. When you're in the green belt next to the Nile, they would just suck your blood. You'd wake up anemic in the morning. And uh, I thought, listen, if we can get into the desert, maybe we'll get away from these mosquitoes. So we cycled down this lonely little road into the desert. A couple of cars went past and they were waving us back, but that wasn't unusual. Um, so we sort of ignored those early warnings and it finally came to Boomgate in the middle of the desert. The first soldier that came was relatively sensible. He just waved us away. While he was talking to us, about 30 villagers came out of a small village next to this pillbox. They were behind us. I was in the lead. We had Simon on my left and Aubrey on my right. We're both, all three of us, completely fatigued. And while we're talking to this first soldier, there was some yelling coming from a pillbox. This very aggressive soldier came out as he was marching towards us. I saw him take his bayonet off the front of his rifle. It was an AK-style machine gun. I remember thinking, why is he taking that bayonet off? That's concerning because this is more than just talking now. He started yelling in Arabic and very quickly it escalated to the point where he jammed this gun on the front of my forehead. And he'd been in the desert for some time, so uh, his skin complexion had gone really, really dark. So I could see by the white of the knuckle that he was applying pressure to the trigger, not just bluffing. And at that point I thought, okay, this is the end. I'm going to die here today. There was a loud clunk as he pulled the trigger and the first round fed into the magazine. And then I looked at the figure again and it was still white, applying more pressure. Uh, But for some reason, he just could not pull the trigger. I looked behind me and the villagers had all moved to the side. They looked like they'd seen this before. They were not overly surprised, but nobody wanted to be in the crossfire. Aubrey and Simon, obviously all of us were terrified. At the same point in time in Indonesia, my folks were asleep and my mother woke up and felt an audible... Presence saying, listen, your son's about to die. And she slipped out of bed and onto her knees and I firmly believe there was some sort of intervention because this guy could not pull the trigger. And at the end I just backed away expecting to get sprayed in the back by machine gun fire that never came. So I think of all of my near-death experiences, that was the the single most miraculous. You could not convince yourself of anything other than a miracle happening.
1: Jeff. You survived that. What happened next? Did you make it to, to Nairobi?
0: I remember having a really sleepless night because we cycled. He'd put a young fellow on a Chinese rally bike to follow us to find out where we were. And after a little while, we left him behind and he couldn't keep up. But we cycled into a remote area and slept in a cattle boma, which was just a circle of thorns. Slept in the middle of that because the wild dogs were trying to get into our food. So we're fighting these wild dogs all night. But every time I drift off to sleep, I would wake and see this guy's finger on the trigger. And for years afterwards, that would would wake me. But the end of that journey was getting to the Sudanese border and then the Civil War had broken out and that was as far as we could go south. So we took a train back to Cairo and in our cabin was a, a British guy working for the British consulate. And I sat with him and I said, hey, what are you doing this far south? Because we're in the middle of nowhere. And he said, I'm I'm looking for two boys. Uh, The families paid me to find their bodies. They were machine gunned in the desert and we found them in a shallow grave. And I just had chills down my back realising, okay, without my mother's intervention, um, he could have been looking for me. How
1: do you reflect on that young man? I mean, 17-year-old boys are famously full of adrenaline and sense of their own immortality and I guess a good dash of stupidity. What do you think about that, that boy who put himself in in harm's way like that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I was very fortunate to, to make it through. It's just, you know, the way the penny falls or spins and turns sometimes and whoever's intervening for you and a little bit of supernatural help.
1: This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au/slash conversations. I want to talk to you about your experiences in the aftermath of the Boxing Day tsunami in 2004, and a warning that that some of what you're going to describe is inevitably distressing. So please take care while you're listening, Jeff. You were setting up your your veterinary practice at the Gold Coast, married to your wife Sarah, and, and young kids. How did you get involved in the relief effort in Indonesia after that tsunami?
0: it's kind of like, I mean, winding back a little bit, my folks went from Kenya back to Townsville and then were stationed in Indonesia from 1981. So a lot of my schooling was in and out, boarding schools and uh, in Indonesia. I became fluent in Indonesian over that time period. So when the Boxing Day tsunami hit, I had this real stab to the heart watching the initial images and then turned to Sarah and said, listen, I need to go up there and help. So I ended up flying to Medan. And then at the time there was a, a, you know, a little known civil war going on in Aceh with a lot of terrorist activity. And it was just the, the Achenese were the only tribe to never get subjugated by the Dutch. So for 300 years they had fought and fought and fought. So they were high spirited warrior like people. And they were still fighting the Indonesian government in 2004. They'd never really been subjugated, but I I ended up under a blanket uh, on a truck driving through this war-torn little state to get to the front line of the tsunami.
1: What kind of scene were you confronted with?
0: Well, you know, I don't think anyone really uh, should ever see that level of death. Like, there was 240,000 dead in the city of Aceh, and I I stepped out of the vehicle, walked 100 metres, and just looked on a sea of dead people. You couldn't walk from here to the front of the building without stepping on five or six bodies. Your boots would pop through rib cages. You had, you know, body fluids all through your mm. socks, all through the bottom of your pants. And the wa- the manner of people's death was just so violent, pushed onto Rio, you know, exposed Rio. There were wild dogs, you know, eating babies, people dying halfway through childbirth. The bends in the river, you know, people of similar body size were collected in one particular part of the river. So there'd be 60 babies in the bend of a river.
1: Oh, it's just unimaginable. What, what skills, you, you had these language skills. How did you offer help?
0: Well, I initially started working with an aid uh, group that were handing out food parcels and they, they were doing an amazing job. But I, I passed this tent where there was a French medical doctor, one of the first to get in country from Medicines to Monde an incredible French charity, and she was just frustratedly asking this guy in broken English, how did you get the injury? And he had this deep laceration to his arm, and I stuck my head in and asked him in Indonesian, and he told me that he'd been holding his two-year-old baby, um, hanging on to the part of a building with his other arm as the wave came through the middle of the town, and then this corrugated iron cut his triceps tendon, and he lost use of the arm and lost the baby. And then I turned to her and said, listen, it's, it's a corrugated iron cut. And then she prescribed tetanus and the corrective treatment that she had to hand. I went to turn and she grabbed me by the arm and said, you have to stay. There was about a thousand people lined up for treatment. And she was just in a sea, you know. Um, and by me being there, we were, we were able to speed up the process. So I spent two weeks with her just translating uh, but the problem was she would get, you know, okay, it's a woodcut, oh, I broke my arm, whereas to me they would offload the entire story. I spent three days in a palm tree. I watched um, my family die in front of me and then this is my injury and i pass on the injury. So your soul was just taking hit after hit after hit. And I managed to do what I do in veterinary practices. You you empathise but you don't let it get through your Teflon coat, your armour, and you have to do that so that you're able to then deal with the next patient. Um, but the guy that got through was, we were at a school um, doing measles vaccines. And as we left the school, I looked through this dark doorway and saw a man on three desks that had been put together, getting fed by his brother, Abung, through a straw. He was mushing up rice. And I walked in. And recognised lockjaw. This guy was completely tetanic. Um, all his muscles were locked tight. He was, his back was arched. He tried to smile through clenched teeth, but he looked all the world like he was gone. He had corrugated iron cuts all over his body. And by now, it's probably day 10 post tsunami. So it was long enough for the Clostridium tetani bug to start producing the tetanus toxin in his system. And I said to Abung, hey, he has tetanus. We need to get him medical help immediately. So I carried him to a van and then drove to the nearest hospital where they told me, frankly, we have nothing for this guy. We have saline and that's it. So I become emotionally involved with him and he was the guy that got through the Teflon coating. So over the next two hours, I drove around the city, finally found an American medical team that had just landed. Said, listen, I need Valium, I need tetanus antitoxin, I need gamma globulins. They said, well, listen, all we've got is Valium. So I took two vials back and we gave it to him and he just relaxed and got some sleep. It was probably midnight when I left him. I went back to the school that I was sleeping in just behind the death zone and had about four hours sleep. And then by six in the morning, I was back at bedside, touched his shoulder and this person rolled over who I didn't recognise as a guy with cholera. And I yelled to the nurse on that ward and said, hey, where is Hallidon? Where is the man that was in this bed? And he said, oh, he died during the night. And I just said, that is BS. There's no way that that man died overnight. I I recognize the light going out in people's eyes, in animals' eyes. I've seen it my whole life. That guy had life force in spades. There's no way he died. He said, no, no, he died. And we, we put him in the morgue at about two in the morning. So I'm working out, going, okay, that's two hours after we said goodbye. He was peaceful and calm. So I went to the morgue and started to get a bit manic. I'm unzipping bags. I'm looking for for his body. Couldn't find them. The funny side of this story, which turns out, is I'm on the steps, completely broken, having gone to every morgue, every hospital in the city. Cannot find him. My neighbour from back home in Currumbin was working for Channel 9 at the time, found me on the steps. said, what's up? I said, mate, I'm... I'm broken. This one got through. Anyway, we had a little West Highland white terrier that used to poop on his lawn every morning. We both eventually got extracted and and left for home, both traumatised, you know, recognising now we had some form of PTSD. And I remember seeing him back his car out while Lockie the Westie was pooping on his lawn. And he leans out the window and says, Lockie, after what I've seen, you go for your life.
1: <laughs> so... You came home after dealing and, and seeing and helping in these just unimaginable circumstances, so profoundly traumatic. What were you like to be around? What does your wife Sarah say you were like after coming home from Aceh?
0: Well, I mean, it sort of deteriorated pretty quickly. Like I've gone from a person with a love for the ocean, I have to see the ocean daily, I have to feel the ocean, you know, several times a week to a point where I just didn't trust it. The kids would... Would, you know, kids go limp in the water and they're face down? If I saw that, I had massive flashbacks of all the babies and, you know, people getting gang-hooked out of the corner of the river and um, I just didn't trust the sea and then I started to drink more and more and more and I just couldn't sleep every time I closed my eyes. We had these horrendous images, just things that you really shouldn't have in your head. About three months in, Sarah came to me and said, hey, you're not the man that I married you need to go back to Aceh and find him. You took a road up there and you took the wrong road. I'm going to send you back and I want you to stay there until you find yourself. So we collected some money from friends to go and find Abang because at that point I believed Haladin was dead.
1: And Abang is his brother.
0: His brother. So I, we collected a few thousand dollars. And said, okay, let's go and bless this guy. So I got on an aircraft, landed in Medan and then uh, drove up to the front line again. And the village that he lived in, um, I stood with him and we, he showed me the house pad. All that was left was the concrete house pad where when the, when the earthquake happened, his wife and two kids uh, and him ran outside and then they looked to the ocean about 20 minutes later and there was this black wall about 60 feet high that then compressed to about 90 feet before it hit the house and there was nowhere to run and they literally huddled. He said he held his wife's hand and, and cuddled the kids and they got hit. And he never saw them again. Mm. He was carried six kilometres inland and deposited in, in a forest with his body all cut to shreds. So I knew that village. I went back to that village and um, was desperate to find him. Couldn't find. There was no one there. So I asked the guy there, where are the survivors from this village? And he he gave me... location. We then drove up into the forest and there were these beautifully just built by Oxfam uh, corrugated sheds. Outside the corrugated shed was a men's meeting area with um, all the men dressed from the mosque having a meeting. And I walked in and recognised Abang. And he stood up and said, the mad Australian returns. What are you doing here? And he walked to me and I said, "Um, you know, with a tear in my eye, I'm here with some funds from our family back home to help you, and he, he said, "We'll give it to Hallidon." What? And I said, well, Hallidon is dead. And he said, no, 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 he's very much alive. Let me take you to him. <laughs> so we walked through these corridors in between the corrugated iron huts and then came around a corner and there was a, a ceramic bath set up for a mandy, you know, with water in it and this muscular back with a sarong on, and I recognised the scarring immediately on his back. I've seen those wounds before touched him on the shoulder and he turned all wet and just looked at me and said, the mad Australian returns. And we had this embrace, which was born out of hardship. Like, I can't explain the connection for anyone who's been through hardship. There's a shared brotherhood or sisterhood of pain. And he just said, what are you doing here?
1: how had he survived that they, they told you he died in the hospital
0: yeah well, it was this classic saving face thing again you know the australian army were bringing a pretty well set up hospital in the next day this is what i then found out so the indonesian hospitals in that area removed anyone who was an embarrassment to their medical care to a death tent in the north of the city and they were excluded from treatment so what he what he very much needed was right at his fingertips when he was removed Abung moved with him, and for six weeks in a in a heated, like a stifling hot canvas tent, he kept him hydrated through a straw, with no antitoxin, no vaccine, no antibiotics. He basically just muscled his way through with his brother's care, and six weeks later, he hobbled out and uh, ended up going back to Lompu. So amazing story, but it, it you know it it's pivotal for me because. At that point in time, I was a veterinary entrepreneur on the coast, sucked into this materialism cycle, losing way with my kids, losing connection with my wife. And I think without Hallidan, I potentially, you know, would have lost contact with my wife, with my kids, end up being a bad dad. He really reminded me to be present in every situation because you do not know how long you've got. Just be there and be present, be the best dad, best husband, best friend you can be.
1: As you, you said, Jeff, all those thousands of lives that you saw that were lost, was there also some kind of comfort that this, this life had survived? You know, you, you would have needed something to reassure you, I think, on just a human level about hope or, or um, connection after what you'd seen. And I guess that story of, of that one man survival offered you a, a flicker of that.
0: Yeah, and I think it was it was more than that, Sarah. It was believing in the goodness of people. So he he married through Muslim law. If, if your brother uh, is killed, then you take on his family. So he'd lost his wife, he'd lost his daughters, but his brother had been killed. So he married his sister-in-law effectively. And I was there to witness that union the first time. I came home and we put everything in management, bought a sailboat, and learned to sail while sailing up the east coast, which I wouldn't recommend to anyone. And then two years later, I sailed back into the village. And I remember going, he's here somewhere. We, the refugee camp had been disbanded. I I was asking everyone, do you know Hallidan from Long Poo? After about six hours looking for him, Sarah said, listen, the kids are tired. We need to go back to the boat. You did your best. And then driving out, towards the boat, I saw a a tree down blocking a road uh, heading into another bay, and I said, he's down there, Sarah. She said, listen, you're manic, you're obsessed, let it go. I said, no, I pulled the tree aside and we drove this little Daihatsu ute down, and there were three men fishing, and I walked up to them and said, listen, do you know Hallidon from Lompu? And the middleman stood up and took his hat off and said, I am Hallidon from (laughs) Lompu. So yeah, it's been an incredible connection with our family.
1: <laughs> so partly out of that, you decide that you're going to put a lot of energy back into the kind of adventuring and the big expeditions that I guess had had been there as, as part of your make-up from that fleeing Uganda and from that bicycle ride out of London down through Africa. Just in, in 2019, 2020, you made an extraordinary journey through Antarctica. What was special about it? Jeff, what was unique about what you achieved in Antarctica? I,
0: well, I think um, it was a culmination of, of a lifetime of corralling the mind, of navigational skills, of using wind power, uh, an absolute love for the wilderness, for the polar regions particularly, uh, all culminated in this one journey where I was trying to to break the record for the longest solo, held by Mike Horn, a very accomplished Swiss South African explorer who held it at 4,814 kilometres for a long time. and
1: Solo journey through Antarctica, across yeah,
0: Antarctica. Yeah, so solo, unsupported. And the unsupported thing is crucial because that means that you, whatever you start with, you finish with. If you pick up even a Mars bar from someone along the way, you, you lose your supported status. So that to me was really important. But for a long time, I struggled to get permission from the Australian Antarctic Division to enter our territory below Tasmania because that's where I wanted to go from the South African side through the South Pole and then out. It seemed impossible, but then we sat having a beer with my cameraman uh, in Hobart, having been turned down for the third time by the Antarctic Division over seven years. And he looked at me and said, listen is there any way that you could get to the centre of the continent, to the pole of inaccessibility, the hardest place to reach on planet Earth, and get home? And I said, well, wind doesn't work like that. If you're using wind power, it generally will push you in one direction. It's very hard. You cannot tack up wind like you can on a sailboat on ice with the weight of the sleds. It's impossible. And I said, well, listen, you and me have a look. So we got the chart out, ordered another pint, which I think helped in the decision process, (laughs) and saw this incredible effect that happens in Antarctica where uh, when the Earth is rotating, the air is colder so it's heavier and it gets left behind slightly, which creates this very weak wind effect in the opposite direction called the Coriolis effect. And I realised if I could get a kite high enough into the atmosphere on 80-metre lines, I could probably get home. But there was a big question mark. And the problem is the question mark, if I was wrong, would leave me in a part of Antarctica that was too far for a retrieval. The Russians, who were my support crew, were very clear that they could get an aircraft to me at altitude on Argus, but it would never take off again. So it was a no-go for them. There's about a 300-kilometre-wide do-not-retrieve area.
1: What did your wife, Sarah, think about this plan I don't know if she had a pint or not, but I'd want a few pints before thinking this was a good idea, I think.
0: I hadn't actually (laughs) told her, but when we got into the Russian base in Cape Town, the day before I'm getting airlifted out, Vasily, who's this incredible hard-nosed Russian campaigner, said, I need to sit with you and your wife. And we get pulled into a boardroom and he puts a map of Antarctica on the table with my route on it and he'd circled the red zone in the middle and he said, Sarah... I need you to understand that if he fails in this area, he's not coming home. And she looked at me because it was the first time that she'd heard this and we're a day out from me departing. And she just looked at me and said, well, don't fail. Amazing (laughs) woman.
1: Those words ring in your ears at various points on this journey?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, the sad thing was I actually did fail in that section. I'd, I'd had three or four days where I'd covered six kilometres in three days, 17 hours of man hauling in deep snow at altitude, uh, continually cold because it's, it's below minus 50 Celsius at this point, because you're about 11,000 feet, still 2,000 feet of climbing to go, 120 kilometres from the top of Dome Argus. Bearing in mind I had to get to the top to get into that Coriolis-affected air and get home, I ground to a halt and called Sarah and just said, listen, I I think I'm spent. I'm done. I've really made a mistake. I've exhausted myself. I can't go back. I can't go forward and I can't be retrieved. And some of the wisest advice she's given me in her whole marriage and she's given me a lot was, listen, I know you feel spent, but double your calories and sleep eight hours. Let's talk in the morning.
1: Such good advice. Always eat and sleep.
0: Eat and sleep. And I think for anyone (laughs) coming to a dead end, you know, often your fatigue stops you seeing the opportunity. Uh, So double your calories and sleep out hours. And that's what happened. You know, there was a miracle the next day where the wind was going up the dome and you, you just don't get wind going uphill in Antarctica. It's all cold air rushing towards the coast. So to get wind pushing uphill. I texted Sarah, I'm moving. And she watched the tracker over the next 22 hours as I inched my way uphill. And 22 hours later, the kite fell out of the sky on the very top of Domagus. So the the coldest naturally occurring place on planet earth, one of the most isolated places I've ever been to. And I managed to get there and collapse.
1: (laughs) How long did this journey of 5,500 kilometres through Antarctica. How long did it take?
0: Uh, it was 58 days. So I arrived back oh at the God. Russian station at 4 a.m. in the morning. Everyone was asleep, dropped the kite and realised, wow, okay, I'm back. And it was a bit of an anti-climax because everyone was in bed and <laughs> in your own head, you imagined all the Russians clapping and fireworks. And No, you drop your kite, climb into a cabin and fall asleep.
1: I bet Sarah was happy to see you. No matter what she said, I bet there was a part of her that didn't relax until you were home. Your most recent adventure, Jeff, took you back to the desert. What did you do?
0: Wow, this is a, I've had a love affair with the Australian desert that started uh, 11 years ago. My son and I, he was then, what was he then, 9, 10 years of age on a little 90cc motorbike and I was in a buggy, trying to be the first person to cross the Australian interior using wind power. And we totally underestimated this little desert. I think, you know, we didn't approach it with the right permissions from the Indigenous peoples at the time. We were just man mansplaining white people wandering in there. And um, I think that had an effect on us. But we also um, just blundered in, assuming this is the Australian desert. It's not a polar region. It's not an African region. There's nothing that's going to eat me while I'm sleeping. Um, and it schooled us. It gave us an absolute spanking. And uh, two weeks later, we were out of food, out of water, and only halfway across. So we left tail between legs. Last year, had another go, got to the Northern Territory border, and COVID slammed us down, and we had to turn around. And then this year, if you'd asked me on day six whether we were going to make it, I would have said once again, I felt like we had enough time, enough provisions. But it was just really difficult. The wind is fickle. It comes from the wrong direction 50% of the time. The dunes are incredibly soft and fluffy on the top and they're all parallel. It's the biggest parallel sand dune desert in the world. And it just seemed like it was never going to be possible to cross it by wind power.
1: And you're riding on this little buggy that's attached to, to the kite.
0: Well, in the early days, we were attached to the kite. But after a few near-death experiences with kites, out of control, dragging the upside down, we've decided safer to connect the kite to you and then you just jam your buttocks in and try and stay with butt power in the buggy and you're steering with your feet. So there's a lot going on because your brain is trying to remember to steer, to breathe and to fly the kite at the same time. Uh, But amazingly, after 12 days and just under 600 kilometres, we got across.
1: And how, how did you celebrate? There wouldn't have been a group of Russians cheering you then. What, what happened once you oh, made it to a, the end? Oh,
0: it was a stiff, uh, stiff whiskey <laughs> and just a, a man hug. But, you know, the irony with this journey is most journeys that I'm doing are, are brutal in the downtime. When you're hauling, you're, you're travelling, your brain is occupied, but in the tent at night, solo, freezing to death, uh, feeling like the weather could turn at any moment and just wipe you like a red smear across the snow... Um, there's a lot of fear attached to it, a lot of stress. And this one, we're around the campfire with your boots off, warming your feet at the fire, having a beer with two of your best mates, going, wow, this is cushy. But, <laughs> yeah, you know, it was still an amazing journey. There's
1: cushy and there's cushy, Jeff. I can just tell with you, you're someone who's always going to have like the next adventure in the pipeline. What's next?
0: I'm really excited about this one because it's the first uh, time I feel like I'm traveling with my boy when he's mature. So I've done journeys with my boy before in Alaska. We very nearly got eaten by a grizzly bear, and he decompensated. And I know he was only 17 at the time, but taking the the knife out and verbally stabbing your dad after a bear's tried to kill you, it wasn't wasn't me that tried to eat us. It was the bear that tried to eat us. But now he's matured, he's 21, he's much calmer. Uh, We are tackling all of the world's uh, at-risk glaciers and mountain peaks off a little boat called Nanook. Uh, and it's a, it's really a carbon responsibility journey, trying to get Aussies to understand their impact and their carbon production through seven journeys over the next two years, uh, called Project Zero. Um, that's exciting.
1: It's exciting to hear about, but I'm glad it's you doing it, Jeff. Thank you so much for being my guest on Conversations.
0: So good, Sarah. Thank you for having me.
1: Jeff Wilson was my guest on Conversations today. I'm Sarah Kanowsky. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations.
0: Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.